Welcome, GCC. Let's stand. Psalms 33.1 says, Let the godly sing for joy to the Lord. It is fitting for the pure to praise Him. Let's praise Him this morning.
to see your glory. We want to hear about your promises. We thank you for those promises. Let's sing that this morning.
everybody. Welcome to Great Commission Church. My name is J.C. Russell. And I'm Leah Bergantz. Uh, we've got a great service planned for you today. It's going to be a wonderful, kind of chilly day. Uh, I hope you grabbed your um, worship guide in there. You'll see a few um, things coming up. Uh, today we're going to have a few more songs. We're going to have the Lord's Supper. Uh, Trevor's got a great message for you. And you'll also see a few events we have planned. Speaking of events, the GC kids are going to a night of Memphis Hustle. This is not just for members, so we'd love for you to join us um, for a Memphis Hustle basketball game. And next, we have summer camp coming up. I know it's hard to think about summer right now when it's about to snow, but go ahead and register your kids for LFR, and then uh, youth uh, summer camp will come out at a later time. Yes. If you have your ministry card, you'll see that there. If you'll grab that, uh, hey, you, uh, we'd love to get to know you. You can say hello to us by filling this out, uh, filling out the welcome card in your chair, or stopping by the, the new here kiosk. We'd love to get to know you. Uh, you can also sign up for our Connect group. It's great. You're going to have a great time, get to know a, a lot of awesome people, open the Bible, uh, and learn more about Great Commission Church. Just mark, if you're, if you're wanting to get to know people, just mark, uh, get to know people at Great Commission Church on your card, and we'll get that set up for you. So as we're moving through the service, feel free to move through those steps on the prayer ministry card. If you want to jump in and do all things at once, we love that. Great. If you want to take your time, we totally understand as well. And as we move into the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage everyone to fill out that welcome card, whether you are new, a, a regular attender, we would love to know that you are here. And you can place those boxes, those in the boxes on your way out. Awesome. Well, the next thing we've got for you guys is the Lord's Supper. So please pay attention, pay attention to the screen as that comes up. We are about to participate in what the Bible calls the Lord's Supper. As members of Great Commission Church, we enjoy being reminded that Christ Jesus died for our sins. The Bible says, For the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Bible also says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. The Lord's Supper is an activity where we rejoice together that we still believe in Jesus. We believe he is the one who helps us to keep loving God and loving each other. We proclaim he is alive and coming back one day. If you are a guest here today and share this saving faith in the Lord Jesus, we invite you to participate with us. If you are not a Christian, or prefer to do this at your own local church, you can simply remain in your seat and observe how we do this. Unbaptized children can come to the table, but we ask that you withhold the elements and use this as a time to spark their questions and continue your gospel conversations with them. At this time, our ushers will release groups by rows.
If y'all would just go ahead and stand, um, we're going to sing another song to worship the Lord. No longer I who live, but Christ in me.
a seat. Hey, are you guys enjoying the 29 Days of Promise devotionals? Man, I know I am. It is so encouraging. And hey, it's not too late to go ahead and grab one of these on your way out. This morning we have a table full of them. Go ahead and pick up with today's reading. They're quick. They're short. Man, they're full of uh, just, just in, insight. And as you work through the promises of God and realize, man, God is, God is good and God has promised me. And I'll tell you, there's been a couple that hit home. We were talking about this in my small group. There's been a couple of, of promises that really hit home with folks in my small group, me included, and it's thinking, I'm glad I read this today because it, it got me through today and I was honoring, glorifying God instead of getting frustrated because God has good promises for me. So if you haven't worked through this or you don't have one, pick one up. You're welcome to grab these. Start today. I encourage you to do that. We are going to receive the, the offering uh, in just a moment. You can use this envelope. There's a few ways to give digitally. But I wanted to share something with you that I absolutely love that's happening in our church right now. And when you give, you get to be a part of that. Maybe not uh, physically up here, but you said, hey, I want to support the ministry of Great Commission Church. I have two pictures. Show the first picture. This is, oh, there we go. Now, that's my cute daughter and her uncle and their basketball. But I want you to pay attention to something that's not in the foreground, but in the background. You see in the background, you see Kyle Bergantz. What he's doing is intentionally, he came up here and he's intentionally building relationships with uh, folks in, in our basketball league. Uh, that's a great guy he's talking to. His name's Nate. Uh, he lives right across the street, and he is helping a small church uh, be planted. And so we learned that about him. So pray for that church plant. It's, it's struggling a little bit, and, man, the world needs more churches, not less. And I'll tell you what, if he ends up, if that doesn't work, and he's looking for a place, I bet he comes here because Kyle built a great relationship with him. He's a good guy, and his son's fantastic, too. What's the next picture? I love this. Go to the next. That's Jen Jones on the floor. What's she doing? She's sharing the gospel with these kids. And I'll tell you, if you'd see the parents' face, they're locked in. What she's saying, it is polished. It was great. She was passing around objects to them, teaching them Bible verses, sharing the gospel with them. That's happening every Saturday up here. And I'll tell you this. Uh, yesterday was just as good as the first time. Don McKenzie got the kids around sharing the gospel with them. The parents are hearing the gospel. They're all memorizing the verses that go along with the gospel. Good stuff's happening. You're a part of it when you give. Hey, ushers, come forward. I'm going to pray for this offering. And I just wanted to share that with you because I know it would give you some joy. We're called to be joyful givers. And that brought me joy this weekend. So I wanted you to know you're a part of that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful in Jesus' name that we get to give and impact your kingdom. God, we're seeing uh, the gospel be shared. God, you are letting us be a part of that. And Father, uh, we just we want to give joyfully this morning to the kingdom of God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Ushers, go ahead and receive the offering now. And I'll tell you, I want to share one more thing as that basket's being passed. Uh, something else you get to be a part of. It's a video of some most recent baptisms. So take a look at the screens.
If y'all would just stand, um, we're going to continue worshiping the Lord.
Jesus, we just give you all the praise this morning. You are so good to us, God, and we we are only here because we want you this morning. We want you to fill us up, God. We expect great things. We just want to be in the- my family and the Lord, and I hope that you will too. Um, I wonder today if I could have your permission to teach the Bible to you. Um, what I don't mean by that is, is anybody keeping me from it? I mean, are you going to go through the motions or will you be like Jesus said, those who have ears to hear, let him hear? My name is Trevor Davis. I'm GCC. How does the world judge Christians? The answer is not by what we teach, but by how we live. They don't care what we teach. Um, they want to see, that the world kind of knows. They want to see if anybody's living it out. And if that's true, if the world judges us not by what we teach but by how we live, what kind of personal interaction will get the attention of the Mexican man who moved into the neighborhood? Or better yet, what does the young unmarried couple who live together in the apartment downstairs, what do they need to see in us? I mean, they're already turned off by church, and they know next to nothing about the Bible. Live. Do the scriptures tell us how to do it? The answer is it tells us lots of places how to do it, and my sermon text today is just one answer to these questions. So here it is, Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Are you ready? Let your conduct be without covetousness. How's that for a word? Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's bow for prayer today. Father, we have now read your word and heard your voice because these scriptures are your very breath and we confess that's what we believe. So God, I pray that you would help me say it right, say it clear, say it well. And I pray, God, today that I can preach to hungry hearts and open ears. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the promise from our text today. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is that a good promise from God? What does it mean? I will never leave you means God says, I will not withdraw my presence. I will never leave you. I will not withdraw my presence. I will not forsake you means I will not withdraw my help. I will not forsake you means I will not withdraw my help. So God promises us, here's what you got for me. 
You have my presence and you have my strong right arm that is able to save. I will not withdraw my help. And I want you to, to see in the scriptures that this promise is especially emphatic. The verse says, he himself has said. Let there be no doubt about who has made this promise. It is the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the divine name. It is Yahweh, the God of heaven. He himself has said. It reminds me of Numbers 23, 19. I read it in passing last week. I put it on the screen this week. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said... And will he not do? Or has he spoken? And will he not make it good? My brothers and my sisters, God's never made a promise he hasn't fulfilled. He cannot lie. In his commentary, John Brown made this remark about this promise. What is all the wealth and honor and pleasure of the world if he is not with us? If he leaves us, what matters it, what is left behind? And if he does not leave us, what matters who or what forsakes us? In other words, you need God more than anything else, and you need God and nothing else. And so when he says, I'm not going to withdraw my presence, I'm not going to take away my help, it's the best promise he can make if you think about it. So here's how this sermon's gonna go. I'm gonna give it one question. I'm gonna give you three answers to the one question from the verses that we've just read. Very simple. Here's the question. Now that you know what the promise is, how does it help? How does this promise help us? In other words, okay, pastor, God will never leave us nor forsake us, so what? Well, I'm gonna give you three so what's. Number one, Here's how this promise helps us. This promise shows us why we can live a satisfied life. You think anybody's going to come to church today in the middle of a bad season of life? And I don't mean the physical weather. Do you think there's anybody sitting around you who is not enjoying their existence right now? And they're not satisfied. I think it's possible. And so this verse speaks to it. How does the promise show us why we can live a satisfied life? It says, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. Well, pastor, what is covetousness? Because I didn't use it in a sentence last week. I know you didn't. It is a Bible word. It is a religious word. But, but hey, can I just challenge you for a second? You should never stop learning. And if you stop reading, you'll stop learning. And I want to suggest to you that when you learn, you add words to your vocabulary bank, your word bank. And here's, here's what I want to suggest. I suggest that you let Jesus add the words to your vocabulary bank that he wants you to have. And so he wants you to know what in the world covetousness is. So I'm going to give you a quick definition. Covetousness is an undue regard for anything present anything sensible, anything seen, and anything that's temporary. So 
You can only desire from your heart and it be a sin, something that's around you, something that's present, something that's sensible, something that you can smell, taste, feel, or hear, or even more important, the biggest sense, something you can see, and it's only a sin to covet if it's temporary. But if you'll start running through the Rolodex of your mind, the hard drive that's in your brain, of all the things you don't have that you really, really want, my guess is they're going to fail that criteria and they're all going to make that list. And so I'm preaching to a room full of and a preacher full of covetousness. And the writer of Hebrews says, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, let your conduct be without it. Coveting is to worldly wealth what marriage is to a husband and a wife. You know, what, you know what it is? You know what coveting is to worldly wealth? It's a love commitment. I mean, you're committed to it. Your whole life's built around it. You, make, you, you, you say hello to it when you wake up. You think about it when you go to bed. That's supposed to be your wife or your husband, but for many of us, it's stuff and things and money and power and influence. Donald Guthrie calls this the menace of materialism. It's a menace. It's, it's something that interferes and messes everything up. Would you be surprised if Jesus had something to say about this in the Gospels? Luke chapter 12, verse 15, our Lord said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. So Jesus says most people ignorant to this. They don't think about it. They don't know it's lurking. They don't know it's a problem. They don't know it's a threat. But our Lord says, take heed and beware. Because if your worldview is what I need is a promotion, what I need is a raise, what I need is more money, a bigger house, a slicker ride, a better wardrobe. I need that. Jesus says, no, you don't. Your life is not about the sum total of the stuff that you have. Is this unclear? Because look, the writer of the Hebrews connects this idea to the promise of God. By the way, we forget this warning every time we ask something like, what's that man worth? And what we're saying is, what's his net worth? How, how much does he have in the bank? And what we really mean is, how much does he own? We never mean, how, how valuable is his soul? That's already been answered by the, by the suffering, violent death of Jesus on a Roman cross. So, if we're not to be covetous, what's the opposite of coveting? Everybody look at me. It's contentment. So, our verse literally says, be content with such things as you have, and it means, listen, be content with the present things. Well, pastor, that's easier for you to say. You're living that middle-class life. Everything, everything looks like in your life, everything's going well. Don't look at me. Look, it's easy to hide. Pastor, I, I, I'm struggling, I'm, 
I'm about to lose my house. I, I've, I've talked to an attorney about bankruptcy. This is easy for you to preach. Listen, the Bible's true no matter how you feel. And this may be the word that, that rescues you from hurting yourself or making even dumber decisions. Be content with the present things. Well, pastor, does that mean that contentment is just passively accepting the inevitable, just, just surrendering to fate and life or whatever you call it, just, just throwing up my hands and being indifferent and going, well, whatever comes will come, whatever will be will be. Is, is, is that what contentment means? Good night, no. Contentment is understanding clearly that money is relative. It means it changes from region to region, continent to continent, country to country, state to state. Everyone in this room today is a very wealthy person compared to the developing third world. And you, don't, you may not feel wealthy in America, but remember, it's all relative. And so when Jesus gets your heart, he changes your worldview and the way you see things. And one of, the way, one of the things he changes about how you think is about money and possessions. So we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, a, a very important section that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy. Verses 6 through 8 read this way. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. You know what that verse is? It's a math problem. You take godly living and a content heart and you add them together. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. But the enemy will whisper into your ear, if you decide to be content with whatever little or much you have right now within the present, you won't gain, you'll lose. Look at all the friends and people around you. Look at the folks with better houses. Look at the folks with more things. Look at the people with more success. If you decide that you have enough, you'll be a loser. That's the voice of the enemy. The voice of God says, godliness with contentment is great gain. Well, how do I get godliness? Well, you've got to be saved. You've got to be rescued from your sins. You have to obey the gospel, trust in Jesus, turn away from your old life, be baptized, get in the local church, become a saved person. Then you can start the road of godliness, and you'll find out that, that the Lord Jesus is the engine that's going to drive your godliness anyway, not your effort and performance. When you get some godliness and you decide to see the world the way God sees it, that's what godliness does, then you'll be content with whatever you have, then you'll be the one that gets all the gains. It's a math problem. Pastor, I didn't expect to come to church to do math. Well, we used words, right? Well, I hated those word math problems, pastors. Don't do that. Well, I just explained it to you, and very well, I might add, amen? That's verse six. Here's verse seven. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. Now, I was a smart aleck young teenager. My dear mother used to, she was a school teacher, and she would get mad at me, and she would say, I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. And one day, I found that verse. <laughs> and I said, Mom, come here. You said something the opposite of what Jesus said. You brought nothing into this world. You didn't bring me into it. That's not what it means. She was a great mom, right? It means that you came into this world as a crying baby with, with nothing in your pockets because you didn't even have pockets. You were naked, yes? 
And you're going to leave this world probably in a coffin, and you won't be naked. You'll be in a suit or a dress, but it won't be any of those pockets, anything, and it won't do you any good. That's food for worms, yes? So this verse is true, and there's nothing you can do about it. You brought nothing in, you're taking nothing out. It's the motivation behind being content. Do you remember the Egyptian pharaohs, and we dug up their... Their, uh, their tombs and all that, and there was, uh, all, their, all their tombs were laden with gold, and there were, there were dead bodies circling the Pharaoh to protect him in the afterlife, and he tried to take all his stuff with him, and he didn't. Now it just goes through museums, right? And we, and we think, well, that was dumb, but it sure is pretty to look at. And then we read in verse 8 about contentment, and having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Look, if you just have enough to eat and clothes on your back, it should be enough. We see the world differently if Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Because the world says that's ridiculous. Contentment is the opposite of coveting. Listen very carefully. It is always spiritually dangerous to grow financially discontent. I'll say that again. It is always spiritually dangerous to grow financially discontent. Because a man who's influenced by the love of money is in danger of employing means of obtaining money that is inconsistent with his Christian duty. He will compromise the, the worldview and the lifestyle of those who belong to the Lord Jesus to go get it. That's why it's spiritually dangerous. He's in danger of a bad trade. He's in danger of sacrificing a good conscience to retain material wealth. And when he's deprived of his material wealth, he's in danger of mourning it as a loss, as if he were losing his own happiness. Run away from this idea. This is exactly what Paul wrote in the same section we just went over, the next two verses, 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Destruction means the end of your earthly physical life. Perdition's far worse. It's the end of your spiritual life. It's judgment in hell. That's what perdition is. And the Apostle Paul warns us, if what you love is money and not God, not only will it destroy your life, it'll destroy the life after your life. Because the love of money, not money itself, loving it, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. I think that a highly materialistic society like the one we live in with all the pressure of godless humanism and secularism needs this very instruction and this warning. Let your life be free of, covetous and be con of covetousness and be content with such things as you have. Now, now, pastor, are you telling me that it's wrong to go George and Wheezy Jefferson on everybody and, and move on up? Did you hear the old voices laughing at that? <laughs> Go to YouTube and find out about George and Wheezy. 
They moved on up to the east side, right? Is it wrong to want to improve our present circumstances? Do we have to just stay here? No, that's not wrong. Pastor, is, is every ambition for me to succeed and get a promotion in life, is all of that contrary to God's purposes? No, it isn't. In fact, every believer should bring his best to work, recognizing that whatever we do in life can be presented to Jesus Christ as a sacrificial offering. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, whatever you do, do it heartily. That means do it from your heart. As to the Lord and not to men. Who's your boss at work, God? Right? Well, when the, hey. I just found out who was asleep. The jumpers. You know, when the, when, when the cat's away, the mice will play was the old adage. Meaning if the boss is not here, work today is going to go a little different. Friends, the boss is always there if you belong to Jesus, yes? You do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. You serve the Lord Christ. And so the best promoter in all of planet Earth is God himself. I want, I want him to move me up. That's why in Proverbs and in the teaching of the Lord Jesus, you have the same proverb where it says, when you go into a house party, don't sit up at the front. Sit in the back and let the master of the party move you up and honor you that way. Don't sit at the front and assume you're the VIP and have to go through the humiliation of the master going, oh, that seat's for somebody else. Yours is back there. I want God to move me up. I don't want him to move me back. He knows the proud from afar. Yes, from a distance. The humble, he says, come on, get close to me. Because, listen to me, material things can always be stripped away. But the promise of God's unending presence can never be stripped. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. I saw this in some of my studies, put it right in my notes. A restless concern for money is a betrayal of trust in God. That leads me to another question for you. What do you truly have? What do you truly have? That's answered in Hebrews 10. Remember, our text is Hebrews 13, so if you were reading the letter, you would have already read this. Hebrews 10, 34 and 35. For you had compassion on me and my chains. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. You, the writer of the letter of the Hebrews said to the Hebrew believers scattered all over the known world, you've been persecuted. It's been illegal for you to believe in Jesus. It's cost you a lot. And you, with joy in your heart, gladly accepted the plundering of your goods, which is the violent taking and stealing of what was rightfully yours. That was okay with you because you understand what you really have. And that's an inheritance in heaven that can't be stripped away. 
It, the next world is going to last longer than the one you're in right now. And that's such an understatement because the next one doesn't end and this one does. So we read in verse 35, Therefore, don't cast away your confidence. It has, it has great reward. Your, your assurance in your faith in Jesus. So, first answer to the question is the longest answer. How does this promise help us? This promise shows us we can, how we can, why we can live a satisfied life. Number two, this promise helps us because it reminds us that we are not alone. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. When we learn that, then we confess something out loud. We may boldly say, Yahweh is my helper. I will not fear. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. Did you know that God is not your personal assistant for the plans that you made? He's not the intern for your ambition. He's not the one you say, here's, here's the direction my life is going to go. Look, I've already, I've already signed the scholarship. I've already got the degree, Lord. This is what I'm doing. This is where I'm heading. And now I need you to come and grease the skids, make the, the rail slick so that I have smooth sailing. It's up to you, God, my secretary, to handle all the details. That is not what he means when, he, when we confess that the Lord is my helper. Instead, he's the one who responds to my desperate cry for relief. The Lord is my helper. I, I will not fear. Literally, the Lord is the one who comes to my help. Now, I don't know if this is true about you, but, but the Christian in general believes that because God is good, the Lord will give him what is good for him. He will work hard. He will be generous with his possessions. And then he'll just leave the rest to God. He certainly doesn't spend his precious time fretting about how he can collect more money or how he can acquire more valuable things because my brothers and my sisters, that's the way the godless live. The believer's heart is set on the riches of the next world, not on the perishable things which have no value beyond death here. The Lord's my helper. I'm not alone. I will not fear. And now here's the third answer to the question. How does this promise help us? This promise protects us from the fear of man. What can man do to me? Did you know that it's possible to covet popularity and be prepared to make almost any sacrifice to acquire it? And I don't just mean high school kids, but I certainly mean them. That you can say, I feel so unaccepted. I, I, I'm, I have no group, have no friends, I don't fit in anywhere. I'll give my right leg for somebody just to welcome me into their group. You can want popularity more than you want money. But believers know that the fear of man is just as enslaving as the love of money. But my brothers and my sisters, when the Lord is our helper, 
We are released from that kind of tyranny. Now, what's the promise of God today? I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. If you look in your Bible, you'll see it's in quotations. It's a quote from the Old Testament. Where is that quote? You'll find that quote in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. Notice it's early in the book. If it's early in the book, then you're going you're gonna to assume that it's God speaking to Joshua, and you're right. Here's what he says. Joshua 1, 5. God says to Joshua, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. How would you like heaven saying that to you? As far as planet Earth goes, you're Superman. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. What does that mean? Do you remember when Moses went and met with God on the mountain? When he came down, do you remember what the people did? They said, cover your face. We can't look at you. You're shining the majesty of God. It's too much for our eyes. As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Here's what that means. God promised to constantly be with Joshua in all his difficulties and trials as he led the children of Israel into and throughout the promised land. Now connect the dot to your seat. In the same way, the Lord has promised in Hebrews to be with his people in every age in all of our difficulties and trials. Now is it a good promise? I'll tell the story and I'll be done. Do you know the name Athanasius? Athanasius was a theologian and a pastor he was the bishop of Alexandria, Egypt in the 4th century. The 4th century is the 300s. He valiantly defended the doctrine of the Trinity against something called the Arian heresy. It was called the Arian heresy because the man who popularized this false teaching was a man named Arius. And the false teaching went something like this. Jesus was not fully God he was a created being. Now, the Arian heresy, still alive today on planet Earth. The Mormons believe it. Jehovah's Witnesses believe it. Oneness Pentecostals believe it. It just never goes away. Jesus is not fully God. He's the Son of God. He's not eternal. God made him, and then he was awesome, but he wasn't always. That's not what the Bible teaches. Athanasius understood the true doctrine of the Trinity, and he was such a polarizing figure that his excellent ministry on earth lasted 45 years, but 17 total of those 45 years, he did time in exile. The government sent him away from his flock so that he wouldn't be able to preach to them, he wouldn't be able to care for them, shepherd them, love them, marry them, bury them, all the things a pastor does. And so the government would just send this man away because he was a firebrand. Everywhere he went, it was fireworks. In fact, his nickname was Athanasius Contra Mundum. Athanasius Contra against Mundum, the world. Athanasius against the world. And most of the books and essays he wrote were titled Against Heresies, Against This and Against this. He was just against, against all the evil. Cool nickname. The Roman emperor at the time allegedly became a Christian. His name was Constantine. You've heard of Constantinople? 
It's now what? Istanbul. Okay, Constantinople, Roman emperor, uh, became a Christian. Constantine respected Athanasius and considered him a counselor. There's a story in the annals of Athanasius called The Magic Hand of Arsenius. Not Arsenio, remember that? Not Arsenius. All right. The Magic Hand of Arsenius. It's a story about something that happened in Athanasius' ministry that illustrates why Christians need not fear man when God is with us. Holy cow. During this time, Constantine, who probably was a Christian, but he didn't understand sound doctrine, and he was more political than spiritual, he decided that it was time for Arius, the heretic, to be restored into fellowship in the church in Alexandria. The problem was there was a faithful pastor standing in the way, Athanasius. And Athanasius looked into the face of the Roman emperor and said, Arius can't come back to church here. He hasn't repented. It's my job to protect this flock from the leaven of false teaching. No, he can't come back. Well, I don't know if you know what it's like to be emperor, but people don't typically tell you no. But Athanasius did. And Athanasius had lots of enemies. One of them was a guy named Eusebius of Nicomedia. And Eusebius of Nicomedia was a friend of Arius. And so when he hears that the Roman emperor wants to get his dude back in the church, he gets up a faction of his friends. They're all Arians. They're all Jesus is not God. They want to go back to the church. They want Athanasius out. And so they begin to plot against him. Sounds a little bit like what happened to Jesus. False witnesses and all of that. And here's what happened. They made numerous attempts to defame Athanasius and have him removed from leadership. Let me give you a ruthless example. The ruthless example is the magic hand of Arsenius. When Eusebius' group that were against Athanasius saw that they had a way in, somehow, and we don't know how, somehow they acquired a severed human hand. That's kind of gross, right? I mean... You cut somebody's hand off, you don't have refrigeration in the 300s. How long can this thing last before you can't be in the same room with it? They produced this hand, and they said, this is the hand of a little-known pastor in a little-known country town in Egypt. His name was Arsenius. And Eusebius and these guys said, Athanasius cut off the hand of Arsenius because he disagreed with him doctrinally. He had him murdered, and now we found this hand on Athanasius. He's been using it to do magic. Well, when Constantine heard those charges, he brought Athanasius up for a trial. The trial was going to be in Antioch, but, Ath but Constantine was traveling, and he didn't want to be troubled by going the extra mile, so he moved the trial to a place called Tyre. In the meantime, Athanasius sent scouts out all over Egypt going, find Arsenius, because Eusebius and the boys had hidden him in the desert among the monks until the trial was over. When the trial got moved to Tyre, Arsenius just could not help himself. It was close enough to his hideout 
that he made his way clandestinely into town because he wanted to sit in the back and watch the trial. The governor of Tyre was a friend of Athanasius. His name was Archelaus. He heard the rumors that, a, that in a nearby hotel or an inn, Arsenius was not only alive, he was in the area and he was staying there. So the governor went and arrested Arsenius quietly. Archelaus, the governor, said, this should be fun. And so he keeps him quiet, he keeps him hidden. He brings him to Athanasius. Athanasius says, this is perfect. So Athanasius goes to trial. He tells the governor, wrap that guy up. Cover his hands in a cloak. And when I call for him in the middle of my trial, bring him in. When the trial started, Athanasius' opponents brought that <laughs> decaying hand into the courtroom. and said, this is the hand of Arsenius. Uh, he, this is proof he's been murdered. He was murdered by Athanasius. Athanasius has been ministering magic through this hand. When it was time for Athanasius to speak in his own defense, he motioned for everyone to be quiet. And he asked everyone in the room, have you met this Arsenius? And he goes around and there were many heads who shook their head yes. None of them knew it was a setup. None of them knew this was a fraud, only a few. Yes, I've met Arsenius. I've been to his church. I know him. He said, good. He said, bring him in. And from the back, the high drama began. Archelaus, the governor, marched Arsenius with his hands bound in a cloak into the room. And Athanasius says, is this the man you know? And he goes around the room and, and they shake their heads, yes, that's Arsenius. Athanasius waits a few moments, and the drama builds. You could hear pin drop if they had pins in the 300s. And Athanasius said to the governor, now he had to look and see it was a right hand. So you don't, unco you don't uncover the right hand first, right? So he said, take the cloak off his left hand. And they see a hand, and they expect to see a hand. And then he said, after waiting about 30 more seconds, now take the cloak off his right hand. And there were two hands. Then Athanasius said, would my accusers tell us from what part of Arsenius' body they cut off the third hand? <laughs> Trial over, right? Oh, no. Athanasius was found guilty of all charges and exiled for the second time. As as Arsenius and his magic hands all sitting right there intact. It's a great story, isn't it? Every bit of it's true. It's documented all throughout Christian and secular history. But pastor, that's an unjust ruling. Of course it is. But remember, I told you that Athanasius was exiled five times. This was number two. You see, even in unjust suffering, God can bring fruitful ministry. Because when Athanasius was sent into exile after proving his case, would that be beyond a reasonable any doubt? But he was found guilty anyway. He was getting the same treatment as the Lord Jesus got. Yes? What did Pilate say? I find no guilt in this man. What can man strip away from me? 
He can strip away your freedom. He can take your stuff. What can man never touch? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You see, what man can never touch is what God can touch. And God's holy and we're sinful. And we're objects of his wrath. We're not born his children. And if, if you die without Jesus Christ then you'll meet up with the one who can kill your body and your soul in hell, and it will happen to you. But God, who's, who loves you, demonstrated his own love toward you, and that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. And so you can miss hell and make heaven if you'll obey the gospel and become a Christian today. Two more verses, and I'm done. Isaiah said it back to back from God. Isaiah 43, 4 and 5. Since you were precious in my sight, you've been honored, and I've loved you. Therefore I, therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I'm with you. I'll bring you descendants from the east and gather you from the west. In Isaiah 43, 4, God says, I love you. And in, God, in Isaiah 43, 5, God says, fear not, I'm with you. Here's what we learn from those two verses. I will be with you means I love you when God says it. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You have his word on it. Let's bow for prayer. Father, your word is so powerful. What a, what a joy and a challenge and a privilege it is to preach it. Now I pray that the spirit of God would apply it to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, as you're picking up your items, if you just one more time look at this welcome card and on the front there might be a next step for you. I'd love for you to read over that. I definitely include a prayer request. And my thought was maybe you've been kicking the tires at Great Commission Church a little bit and you're thinking, hey, I'd like to pursue membership and see what it's all about and kind of lock arms with him. There's a become a member of Great Commission. We couldn't make it too much easier than that. You check that and we'll take it from there. You can put these cards in the boxes on the end of the rows. We would love to... Uh, connect with you. We'd love to pray for you through those cards. But hey, if everyone would stand, prayer ministry team, come on forward. Don't leave without receiving prayer. And I wanted to encourage you, if you have a prayer request on this card, bring that up to the prayer ministry team. Let them pray for it right before you leave here. Hey guys, uh, you are dismissed. Come forward for prayer.